my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at St. Peter's Fireside, and um, I'd like to extend my welcome to you. It's good to have you here with us uh, this morning. Um, I wonder, I'm giving my age away here, I think. Do you remember when they used to have cliffhangers at the end of TV shows? Uh, when you had to wait like a whole week for Dawson's Creek to come on or, <laughs> or 24, do you remember that? Like it was like hour by hour, these classic shows that like had you at the end of your seat, maybe not Dawson's Creek, uh, but definitely um, 24, they did that, right? It was something exciting that was happening and for the next week you had to kind of wait. Um, it built character, it was painful, but it built character. Now all you need to do is wait 15 seconds and it's gonna play naturally for you, isn't it? Well, last week, Shannon, uh, I think quite superbly, preached on the beginning of, of Luke 15. If you haven't listened uh, to it, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, she preached on the first two parables of three. And we've been waiting all week. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I have, because I've been preaching on it. Um, but we've been waiting for the next installment. The thing is, there's also kind of a cliffhanger at the end of our passage. I don't know if you noticed, uh, it just kind of stops. I wonder if you thought, oh, Paul, have you, have you got all of this? They don't tell you what happens. It just kind of stops. There's a cliffhanger at the end, and I think that's deliberate. And we're going to look at that uh, this morning. You see, there's an unresolved what will happen next moment, and we're left to think what will happen. And what will happen if I were in this story? There are two sons in this parable. The younger son is welcomed back with a party. The older son refuses to go in. The welcome is extended. Will it be accepted? The invitation is to the father's house, to the father's heart. What will the older son do? And so we're encouraged to consider there's an invitation for us too. What will we do? Will we enter in? What's stopping us from entering the father's house? What is stopping us from enjoying the father's heart? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So why don't I pray as we begin? Lord God, thank you that you're good, that your love endures forever. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We don't have to guess at what you're like, but that you've revealed yourself to us in the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, but also in your written word, which speaks of him. And so we ask that your spirit would open that up to us uh, this morning, that we would see what we would not otherwise see of, of who you are and what you're like. Um, we ask that you do that uh, for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of Luke 15, just to get some context to what we're doing. It says in the first couple of verses this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. There are two groups at the beginning, tax collectors and, and sinners. They were the law breakers. They're the ones that were looked down upon. They're the ones that were shunned and you didn't want to eat with them. And then you had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the religious elites, the do-gooders, the law keepers, if the others were the law breakers. The muttering and complaining was from one of the law keepers. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Why does he hang out with the law breakers? Doesn't he know the rules? And Jesus proceeds to tell three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, as it's commonly known. Lost sheep, 
um, is lost out in the wilderness, out there, and the shepherd goes out to find and uh, bring home that lost sheep. But then there's a lost coin. Not lost in the market, not lost out there, but lost in the home of this woman who then lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it inside the house. And they both have parties. Uh, one is outside and is brought in. One is inside and found. And so we come to this third parable. And it's a beautiful parable on its own. I think um, it's one of the most beautiful pictures of, of, of God that we have, I think, in Scripture. But it's all the more powerful and pointed when we see it in the context uh, as the final parable of a trilogy. Okay, there's one, two, and then this is number three. You see, Jesus puts the lostness of the first two parables into a single parable. You see, the younger son is lost in a distant country. He's out there, right? While the older son is lost in the house. He's in here. Do you see the difference? See how he's bringing these things together? He could have had the woman look for it outside. She dropped it in the street and she went out to find it, but it was in the house. There's a lostness that can happen even inside the house and inside uh, what's going on as well as it can be outside. So Jesus is discussing two different kinds of lostness here and two locations for that lostness. Okay? He's talking about two different kinds of lostness, uh, both in terms of its kind, but in terms of where that is. And that'll be relevant for our exploration of this uh, parable. Okay? So let's look at these. Let's look at the differences first and then the similarities between the two sons. Okay? First, the difference. Well, the younger son's lostness is very obvious, isn't it? Right? If we were to uh, go off the rails and decide to kind of um, just do whatever we wanted, we would do what the younger son did. He seems to have no tact, no respect for cultural norms. Uh, to use modern language, he's a bit extra. <laughs> he says to his dad with no subtlety, Father, give me my share of the estate. And then when he gets it, he goes off uh, to a distant country. He sets off uh, for a road trip of a lifetime, except he's terrible at money. He doesn't have an, an emergency fund. And so when famine comes, the distance to the distant country is felt keenly by him. He's a nobody, and actually he knows nobody. His expensive taste then comes back to bite him as he has to eat with the pigs. It is in the pigsty, the lowest of the low for him, that he decides to go home and grovel. It's a long way away. He's in a distant country, but it's his only hope. He's got to do something. He's completely and utterly lost. He has no hope, but he's completely and obviously lost. So he prepares a speech and makes his way home. But then we have the big brother. We don't hear anything from him as his baby brother effectively spits in his dad's face, asking for your half of the inheritance in Middle Eastern culture and many other cultures, really. It's like telling that person that you wish they were dead. They are more useful to you dead than alive. So can you give me the money that I would get if you were dead anyway? So the father's willingness to do this was already counter-cultural enough. It meant that the land would have to be split and then sold off those that remained were living and living off a smaller piece of land. He would have felt that. But he did so dutifully. We don't hear anything from him. That was all wrong, but so long as the 
the toe rag of a little brother was off in a different country. It didn't bother the elder brother. Good riddance. He could be dutiful, obedient, bide his time. He could finally wait until he gets what is his due, what he deserves. But the younger brother returns. It should be in shame with consequences and repercussions, but it doesn't, and the older brother is livid. In verse 29, it says this, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. These are the differences. Differences in outlook and character and behavior. And yet, and yet there are some very notable similarities which I want to draw us to now. Look, both sons are in the field. Both move physically in the direction of the house. But in each case, it's not a desire for restoration with the father, but to further their own agenda. They both see their relationship to their father within a framework of obligation and entitlements. It's kind of like a master-servant relationship. The younger son's request for his inheritance is a legal thing. It's legally mine, so why shouldn't I get it? And the elder son's expectation of a reward is based on his understanding of their familial and legal roles. I've worked hard for you. I deserve this. These perceptions ultimately shape their attitudes and responses to their father's action in the parable. Both break their relationship with the father in outrageous ways. One does it by declaring a desire for the death of the father and breaking the law, but the other actually insults the father in public by not going into the party while keeping the law. You see how both sons reject the father? Both sons reject him and refuse him. And so the issue for both actually in this parable is this, will they accept their lostness and allow themselves to be found? That's what all these lost and found parables are asking. Um, and it was a, a sheep that did get found. They're a bit dim, so they're, they're easily found. A coin is inanimate, so it, you just need to put it where, where uh, find where it was. But here, two sons, what's going to happen? Well, they accept their lostness and allow themselves to be found. That's what it means to repent here, to, to, to come uh, home, to come to their senses, to come to the one uh, who, who calls them home. We know that the younger son accepts because the feast happens. You can almost smell the, the flame-grilled prime rib in the air. But he's obviously lost, right? He's stereotypically lost. And, and it, kind of, it makes sense to the story in some ways that he comes back and, and he's brought in. It's beautiful. But the cliffhanger is this. The parable ends and the listeners wonder, what does the older brother do? Will he accept his lostness and allow himself to be found? At first glance, it seems unlikely. Both are lost, but the elder brother's rejection of the father is more subtle, therefore more insidious, more dangerous. The elder brother lost, um, is lost despite white-knuckled obedience. He's tried hard, he's done everything, he's obeyed everything, and he's in the field, he's He's close, but he's not close enough. Lostness is not just in a distant country, but it's actually 
can be in the house, can be in the field. You can be lost out in the field even when the door is wide open. You can be a teacher of the law and still be lost and outside. And so Jesus in this parable is redefining lostness. Not as behavior that is wrong, which is what we think of, right? When we think of those who are in and who are out, those who obey and who do the right thing, they're in, and those who don't obey and who, who don't do the right thing are out. He redefines lostness by being a posture of the heart that refuses to be found. And we can do that by breaking the law, or we can do that by keeping it and asserting our right. I've obeyed it all. How dare you not give me what I deserve? This is rather frightening in some ways because it smashes our normal categories of the obediently righteous versus the reckless party goers. If both can be lost, then, I don't know, it feels precarious, right? We can find ourselves lost if we're rule keepers as much as we can be lost if we're rule breakers. But while frightening, I think it can also be enlightening for some of us. Our own experience of maybe our own hearts or those who you've grown up with in your own life who are religious and all that sort of stuff but seem still kind of rotten to the core. Let me give an example of this in, in, in literature. Um, in Flannery O'Connor's short story uh, called Revelation, there's a central character there called Mrs. Turpin. Um, I think um, from British terms, um, as hyacinth in keeping up appearances, it'd be something like that. It was a lady who always looked down on people and for keeping up appearances would, would um, make sure that other feel, people felt bad enough in her presence. But let me talk about Mrs. Turpin. She's portrayed as a deeply religious woman who on the surface seems devoted to her faith. She frequently prays and holds strong convictions about her own righteousness. However, her religiosity mirrors that of the elder brother in Jesus' parable in the prodigal son. Just as the elder brother in the parable is self-righteous and judgmental, Mrs. Turpin judges others around her, categorizing them into what she considers virtuous and inferior groups. She uses her faith not as a means of humility and love, but as a way to uphold her own sense of superiority. Mrs. Turpin exhibits her judgmental and condescending nature in an encounter with a woman named Mary Grace at a doctor's waiting room. Mary Grace, a young college student, becomes increasingly agitated by Mrs. Turpin's self-righteous chatter in the room and abruptly hurls a book at Mrs. Turpin, striking her in the face. <laughs> Random story. But Mrs. Turpin responds with anger, but the incident leaves her deeply disturbed. Later, in a pivotal moment in the story, Mrs. Turpin has a vision of, or, or dream. In this vision, she sees a procession of people ascending to heaven, starting with the white trash and ugly individuals whom she had previously looked down upon. To her shock and horror, she realizes that these people are being welcomed into heaven ahead of her. In her vision, she reaches out to God and pleads for understanding, questioning why she is left behind. This revelation shakes Mrs. Turpin to the core challenging her deeply ingrained sense of self-righteousness and forcing her to confront her own sinful nature and prejudices. 
So in some ways, it's frightening that, that, that Jesus smashes these categories away, but in some ways, it's, it's enlightening for us. And, and maybe we do have some returning uh, prodigals. We have some returning younger brothers who have left the church because of people like this, who for their life have just been told to, um, to buck up and to, to behave and, and uh, yeah, clean up or ship out, right? And this lack of grace, this lack of... Um, of care, this judgmentalism and condense, uh, not condensation, uh, <laughs> condescension. Very different things. Although if uh, there's enough uh, heat generated, there might be some condensation, right? This anger, this, uh, this um, nature that we can be when we're older brothers. And so we're left from her, uh, Mrs. Turpin, and the elder brother with this puzzling sense that all are welcome, but not all go in. All are welcome, but not everyone goes in. What stops the son from entering the father's house? Like, why would you not go in? It doesn't seem to make sense to me in some ways. Why, why wouldn't you? It's there, it's a party. The prime rib smells amazing. It's how he sees the father. He misunderstands the father's heart. We see that he's angry at grace. We sing often about amazing grace, but there's some people for whom grace brings that anger. He became angry and refused to go in. His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me anything so I can celebrate even with my why was I not told, Dad? Why am I overlooked? Why are you letting him come back after all of this? He made a fool out of you. I've done nothing but support you and serve you. Never done anything wrong, and you've done nothing for me. Notice the father's heart. The father's going out to plead with him. My son, my child, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. He's saying, son, you've got it all wrong. This young goat, the, the fan calf, everything I have is already yours. It's literally yours. You're not a servant. You're my son. You're trying to earn something that is already yours. Come into the house. Come into my heart. That's what I've been longing for. Even as you've been slaving away, thinking that you can earn my love, it's, it's right here. Of course, the, the brother doubts this. He has a very distorted view of the father that stops him from entering the father's house and enjoying the father's heart. What's stopping the older brother? He has a view of the father as overly demanding. It makes him overly demanding of himself and overly demanding of his brother and of everyone else that he's in contact with. He has a distorted view of the father and he's put demands on himself that his father did not put on him. He rejects his father based on demands of the father that the father didn't even put on him. It sounds stupid and nonsensical, right? It is. But we all do it. I think we all do it. I can't speak for you. I shouldn't speak for you. I can tell you that I do it. Let me give you an example. Recently, I've realized that much of my life has been geared around not getting into trouble. Okay? This tells you the sort of kid I was growing up, 
who would have laughed at being a pastor or whatever, right, um, when, when I'm 40, 41 or whatever. And there's a deep sense of keeping the peace in all I do. So long as I'm not scolded, I'm good, right? In some ways, that's good because it means that I have a low bar of achievement. <laughs> so long as it keeps me from getting into trouble, I'll do what's necessary. I'll do it. But I realized recently, and I'm talking in the last few months here, I was doing these things out of duty rather than love. I would do things if the person or authority was watching, but not if they weren't. I was simply avoiding trouble by doing the bare minimum. I spoke to someone about this. Uh, I was reflecting on it, and uh, he asked me, if you were to show that as a posture on stage, uh, what would it look like? And uh, I paused and... I didn't do it, but I said, the first one is standing to attention, right? Constantly like this. Always thinking, I've got to be ready. I've got to stay out of trouble. I've got to make sure I look as if I'm doing the right thing. The other thing, uh, the other posture I thought was, was hunched over and looking behind me to see who's watching. <laughs> right? Those are my two postures. Right? It's laughable, look at them. <laughs> and so that's how I've been engaging with myself, the world, and with God. He's making sure I'm standing to attention, and he's looking to see what I'm up to, because uh, he wants to get me into trouble. I've got to be at attention always. If not, then I've got to look over my shoulder to see what he sees in hope of not getting found out. And it's tiring, I can tell you, it's tiring. Maybe that's why I've got sore shoulders. I'm always standing up straight or, or hunched over, right? It makes sense though, I think through my story, some of you know that, and if you don't know that, you can ask me of it. But let me spell it out and uh, make it more general so that you can apply it to your own story, okay? We come out of the womb looking for someone looking for us. Our need for connection means that we yearn for affection, attention, acceptance, approval. But when we don't get that, for whatever reason that is, whether that's neglect or negligence or inability or incapacity or abuse, we cope in several ways. We look for affirmation, attention, acceptance, approval, appreciation in other people, in other places, in other things. These are where addictions, big and small, come in. They help us survive and get what we fundamentally need but I've not been able to receive. We also distort and reframe our sense of self to make sense of it all. If I don't get these things that I need, then what's going on? Either I blame myself or my caregivers, but if I blame my caregivers, then it doesn't really make sense for me to stay here. I don't get the, the, the other things that I, I need, uh, but I, I, I can't get myself, whether that's shelter or, or food, whatever. I blame myself. And we distort and reframe our sense of self to make sense. And we begin to say, it must be me because I'm not enough. It must be that I'm not good enough. It must be that I'm not important enough. It must be that I'm not lovable enough. And also distorts how we see others. I need to work harder. I need to prove myself. I cannot be seen to be lazy. I must show that I'm worth it. Or we convince ourselves that what we need is not only impossible, but the reverse of what is true because of that shame. I need affection, attention, acceptance, approval, but 
I'm so used to getting distance and disinterest and demand and disapproval that I think that that's what the world has for me. And of course, this happens with God. I can't get affection. No wonder God feels dis distant. I, can't, I never got any attention as, as a child. It's not a surprise that, that the God would feel disinterested in me. I don't know what acceptance looks like. Of course, God seems demanding. It's all I know. It's all I've known. And so the strange thing is, the older son hears from the father something that is actually not said. That he needed to earn his father's love. He couldn't hear what was being said, that he was already a son, that everything was his. Brothers and sisters and, and friends, what if we are projecting onto God what he's not saying to us? Have you ever considered that possibility that God is not saying those things to us and we're living out of that place? It sounds funny to say up here. and Maybe it feels funny to even think of, but what if he's not this demanding, impossible to please, distant authority figure that I remember only in my body from childhood through parents and families and teachers and culture? What if he's not a bigger version of that? But he's wanting to undo this. I wonder, what is God not saying to you that you think he is and that's affecting all your interactions with him and with everyone else? What's your posture in this world? How would you enact that on stage? I'll let you think for a minute. It's hard to imagine a posture. Imagine yourself after a long day, returning to your own place, collapsing onto a chair, onto bed. You're shattered, you're tired. You hear the door opening. What's your first response? Fear, and who's coming to attack you? Frustration, oh, I haven't got time to clean up. Anger, how dare you bother me? Or thank goodness someone's here to care for me. Encourage you to reflect on your reactions. Notice what's going on there for you. All are welcome, but not all go in. What's stopping you? I realized that living a life that was subconsciously just trying not to get into trouble was not serving me well. Like going swimming and trying not to get your hair wet. Just not the same, right? <laughs> swimming like that. If all I'm doing is trying not to get in trouble with my wife, my family, my colleagues, my friends, then that's a low bar. But there's very limited intimacy, joy, enjoyment, vulnerability, simple presence. Because I'm always on guard. I'm always looking over my shoulder. I'm with God all the very more. How could I love a God whose main purpose is to catch me from doing something wrong? Really love him. How can I be honest, real, and vulnerable, and myself with him? How can I really struggle before a God like this when my main thought is to hide when things go wrong? And how can I be just in the presence of a God like this if I'm always wondering what am I in trouble for next? Now, this was helpful for me. Let me read from this book, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen. Uh, some of you will have read this. 
But let me read that for us now. For most of my life, and now in writes, this is a reflection on uh, this picture uh, by Rembrandt. But there's lots of good reflections on the, 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 this parable. For most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life. Pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now, I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. In all three parables which Jesus tells in response to the question of why he eats with sinners, he puts the emphasis on God's initiative. God is the shepherd who goes looking for the sheep. God is the woman who lights the lamp, sweeps the house and searches everywhere for her lost coin until she finds it. God is the father who watches and waits for his children, runs out to meet them, embraces them, pleads with them, begs and urges them to come home. It might sound strange, but God wants to find me as much as, if not more, than I want to find God. God is not the patriarch who stays at home, doesn't move, and expects his children to come to him, apologize for their aberrant, aberrant behavior, beg for forgiveness, and promise to do better. To the contrary, he leaves the house, ignoring his dignity by running towards them, pays no heed to apologies and promises of change, and brings them to the table richly prepared for them. I'm beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding out and making it difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who is looking for me while I am doing the hiding. When I look through God's eyes at my lost self and discover God's joy at my coming home, then my life may be less anguished and more trusting. Wouldn't it be good to increase God's joy by letting God find me? and carry me home and celebrate my return with the angels. Wouldn't it be wonderful to make God smile by giving God the chance to find me and to love me lavishly? Questions like these raise a real issue, that of my own self-concept. Can I accept that I'm worth looking for? Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me? What's stopping you from entering the Father's house? What's stopping you from enjoying the Father's heart? We need to allow our understanding of the Father to be shaped by him. This is why we need a Bible. I could not have come up with a Father like this. I would, I've never experienced it. I couldn't have made it up. Jesus speaks of the Father with such beautiful intimacy and, and tenderness. There is compassion a kind of tiptoeing, ready-to-run kind of compassion that seems to be bursting out, that is attentive, that's, that's waiting, that gives attention. Even as the sun is a distance, still a long way off, it was undignified for grown men to run in those days, but he sprints out, and there's affection. He doesn't go, nice to see you, son, welcome back. 
He throws his arms around him and kisses him. There is approval. There is acceptance. He says to his servants, quick, bring the, the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger or sandals on his feet. Bring the cat and calf. Kill it. Let's have a party and celebrate. He was dead and now he's alive. There's rejoicing. It's the opposite, is it not, friends, of distant, disinterested, demanding and disapproving. There is delight and joy. There is generosity and forgiveness. I couldn't have come up with a God like this, a father like this. After all that the son had done, is this picture in your photo album? Is it front and center in your living room? There are other pictures we have of God, and this is one part of the big constellation, but there I suggest a big part. Let's not overlook that he runs out twice, not just to the younger son, but to the older son too. He, he goes out to the older son too. Both times the father reprocesses his righteous, rightful, it would have been rightful anger, um, into forgiveness and into grace. He scorns the shame and offers a costly demonstration of unexpected love. To both, he offers the welcome of his heart into his house. Come not to be found out, like you think, Lloyd, all the time, but come to be found in. He moves forward to meet us, folks. He runs forward to meet us. This is the Father's heart for us. And so that's the first application. Let me briefly go through this, right? There's not much, but there's, that's the first application. Understand the heart of the Father. That's the heart of the Father for you. Secondly, invite Jesus into the assumptions that you have. Allow him into the story to allow him to enter your room as you are tired at the end of yourself, wondering who would want to come in. Who is this? Allow him to shape the posture that you have to God in the world. When my friend asked me what postures I had imagined on stage, he then asked, what would Jesus do with those? How would Jesus interact with you in those? As I stood to, to attention, I pictured him with me, kneeling with me. You can rest. As I looked over my shoulder in suspicion, I imagined him putting his arm around me. You've got this. Don't need to hide. Jesus is to shape our idea of who God is. He is the true elder brother who comes to bring us home with costly love at the cost of his own life. But to allow him into these moments, these imaginations, these uh, genuine fears and, and assumptions that we have that, that, that may not be conscious, but that we just live out of. Thirdly, give space for the spirit to work in your life. The spirit you received, we're told uh, when we give our lives and, and some surrender to allow ourselves to be found. The spirit you received brings your, about your adoption to sonship, to be sons and daughters of God. What if you allowed this to be the focus of this spiritual life? Of just realizing I really am a child. I don't need to be a slave. How that would change. Finally, allow this to change how you see family brothers and sisters in Christ. If the question is not of, of who is in and who is out, is shaking all about. It's not the religious or unreligious, right? It's not the religious or unreligious. It's not those who, who look like they should be here and, and, and who, who, who obey all the rules. 
but it's those who have allowed themselves to be found by Christ. Pigsty or not. It shatters our judgment. It gives us grace for ourselves and, and for one another. So understand the Father's heart. Let Jesus in. Allow the Spirit uh, to, 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 to show you that you're your children and allow it to change uh, your sense of family. What does the older brother do? We don't know. That's the cliffhanger. But we can see what we can do. We are invited to enter the Father's house. We have to enjoy the Father's heart. I wonder what's stopping you. Don't let it stop you any longer. All are welcome. Come right in.